So I know that I, uh, this is the first time that I presented here. So some of you know me, some of you don't know me. So I will give just a quick introduction. I really enjoyed Justin's or Dustin's introduction last week. I thought it was wonderful. So I'm Malia Bond. Uh, my husband, Nathan, and I have been married for 16 years. I grew up a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he did not get uh, baptized until he was about 19 when he moved away from Utah, which is kind of a fun story. Um, from there, we uh, have experienced a lot traveling. We're military. And somewhere around 2012, 2013, uh, Nathan started really getting a desire to learn more and to grow more in the gospel. And it became this, um, you could say this small little fire that started to burn within us where we really just wanted to understand more and, and read more and pray more and, and hear the, hear the guidance of the spirit more in our lives. And that started with, you know, studying, um, anything that we could find, you know, talking with state presidents and, and, and temple presidents, anyone that would talk to us and share any light or knowledge that they had and, and uh, studying everywhere that the Spirit tended to lead us. Um, some great biographies. Ezra Chaff Benson's biography was wonderful. Um, journal discourses. We just got everything, and we just started pouring through it. And then about 2017, when we were living in New York, we had an amazing state president that got up in state conference, and he made a promise to everyone that was in attendance and he actually prefaced his promise first by saying, I know that most of you won't do this. And that really caused Nathan and I to perk up and go, whoa, he's going to give us a challenge. And he said, I promise you that if you set aside 20 minutes every night for the Lord and pray to the Lord for 20 minutes every night, completely dedicated to him, that your lives will change. And he talked a little bit about that promise. And then, of course, he came back and he said a second time, I know that most of you won't do this. And I have a hard time um, giving you this information because I know you'll be held accountable now that you've been given it. However, the spirit is constraining me to make this promise. And so we went home that night and we talked about it. And, and Nathan was like, well, why would we not want to, you know, um, have our lives change you know, that, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so um, right away, we started dedicating that time to the Lord every night. And of course, we said our prayers and we read our scriptures and we were already doing so many things. Um, but having so many little kids, you know, we have our sixth kid on the way here in a couple of weeks. And and um, it it was it was really hard, you know, between kids and bedtime and then um, falling asleep while you pray. <laughs> it, it was an interesting experience. But um, we noticed within just a couple weeks, uh, things started changing. We started hearing things and we started growing more and, and started seeing the, the hand of the Lord in our lives so much more. And it was incredible, even to the extent where a few weeks later, we had a situation happen with our daughter who was 18 months old at the time. And she actually, uh, from some guidance from the Lord, ended up saving her life medically. And it was incredible. Um, from there, we moved to Hawaii and that's where we lived for the last three years. And everything just kept moving forward. We kept desiring to understand truth. And we kept uh, going to the Lord and asking to see and understand more. Um, we dedicated um, one day a week to going to the temple, each individually, and then sometimes twice a week. We'd go together on sat, sat, uh, Saturdays. 
And it was then that we started really seeing the doctrine of Christ unfold. We started really asking to have our eyes opened and to hear the voice of the Lord in all things. And it became not, you know, I just want knowledge, but it was, I want truth. I Show me what's true. And if there's anything that I'm doing that's untrue or if there's anything that's going on, um, we want to get rid of any unbelief or anything that's incorrect. And we want to only, you know, be guided by you. And that really led us to understanding the doctrine of Christ and coming to um, see the patterns of this doctrine in the scriptures. And that's what brings us to the uh, theme of our meeting tonight is for me, ever since I was little, I mean, I had amazing parents that would read scriptures with us that, you know, we'd all sit down. I had five brothers and we would take turns reading the scriptures. And as much as I believed the scriptures to be true, and as much as I loved the patriarchs that we read about when it came to the old Testament and even parts of the new Testament, I felt very disconnected. I, I felt like they lived a very different gospel than I was being held accountable to. And it's not that that was necessarily a hindrance for me, but it was something that I never got answers to. And I never was quite able to process, you know, why if, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does it feel like they lived something so very different than what I live today? Why is my redemption and my salvation purchased at a different price than what they purchased theirs at through our Savior, Jesus Christ? And as I came to ponder on that, especially during the last few years, um, seeking truth and seeking light, I started seeing the pattern of the doctrine in Christ that went all the way back to Adam. And it connected all these things that I had wondered in and thought of my whole life that I had never gotten answers to. And the whole time they were in the Book of Mormon, the whole time they were, you know, in the Old Testament and they were in the New Testament, they're in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, but I'd never seen them. And so that's what we're going to be going over today is we're going to be connecting all these things. And we're going to show you that the doctrine of Christ has never changed. It, it does look like things are very strange compared to what Moses did. <laughs> And some things that Abraham did and some things that Adam did. Um, but the reality is, is that it's the exact same. There's different ways that they taught it through symbols and um, through their actions. However, when you understand what the symbols mean and you understand the purpose behind it, then you come to see that we're doing the same thing, that we're striving for the same goals and that what they attained is attainable to us. So I'm going to go ahead and share and Basically, I have this slideshow that we'll go through, and um, we will, uh, the, what you'll see here is we're going to go through some things. I'm going to read a lot of scripture, and so if you want to pull up the scriptures yourself, you just want to read with them on the screen, that's fine, but I really don't want to skip any scripture because there's so much power in going directly to the scriptures and reading straight from them and, and following the spirit as we do so. So the, the main points that we're going to go through today is everything always starts with the creation, the fall, and the atonement. Those are the three pillars that we're going to discuss tonight. And the way that the redemption always comes into play is by someone receiving the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And the only way you attain baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost is through the new law or covenant which is the broken heart and the contrite spirit. And I don't know about you, but for me, you know, growing up in the church, this 
if you were to go search this in the Book of Mormon, you'll be shocked at how many times it says broken heart and contrite spirit. But I, I've had several friends and even myself just a couple of years ago who, if you had asked me, okay, well, what's a broken heart and contrite spirit? I would have said, why? You know, I, I maybe would have given uh, some kind of quick answer. But to be honest with you, I don't think I would have quite known. And I wouldn't have known how important it was. But once you start pulling these scriptures and you start seeing the patterns, and that's where we're going to go over a lot of the patterns in, in the patriarchs' lives, that's when you're going to see how important the broken heart and the contrite spirit is, and that is the law. And that through that is how you attain baptism of the fire and of the Holy Ghost. And so we'll go through these patterns, and then we're going to show how this all applies to us today, how we're all one. The doctrine of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So true, uh, true baptism has two parts. Right? So you have water and then you have fire. So water is the carnal outward expression, which, you know, being uh, most of us are LDS, so we understand that, as that aspect of it. Um, but the baptism of fire of the Holy Ghost is an inward spiritual expression. So we've got Moses 660, for by the water you keep the commandment. So the, the Mosaic law was very much about just being obedient, right? So by the water, you're keeping the commandment. You're just obeying and following. By the spirit, you're justified. And by the blood, you're sanctified. So the justification and sanctification are the important parts there. Those are the parts that actually redeem and, and give salvation. Joseph Smith taught very clearly, you might as well baptize a bag of sand as a man, if not done in view of the remission of sins. And getting of the Holy Ghost, baptism by water is but half a baptism. And it's good for nothing without the other half. That is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And then 3rd Nephi 19.9. And they did pray for that which they most desired. And this is the disciples after Christ has come. So they've already been in the presence of Christ. And it came to pass when they were all baptized and had come up out of the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So watch for that word filled because we're going to go through a lot of scriptures and it's almost all of them. When we're talking about individual patriarchs or prophets in the scriptures, they're going to mention filled just like they did there. And that's a reference to the Holy Ghost, um, baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. So Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you. So this is John the Baptist with water unto repentance, but that's not unto salvation, right? But he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He's referencing Jesus Christ. There is no uh, servant at the gate. Christ is the one who knows your heart, who knows if you have offered up that broken heart and that contrite spirit, and then can give you that baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. Um, Joseph Smith's translation of John 1, 28 says, he it is of whom I bear record. He it is that... He is that prophet, even Elias, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose, or whose place I am not able to fill. For he shall baptize, not only by water, but with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And then this last reference here that I I really love is 2 Nephi 31, 13 through 14. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then 
shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. And real quick, I'll just stop there. There are certain gifts that come with the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And you'll see those gifts apparent as we go further through the scriptures, speaking with the tongue of angels, shouting praises and being filled. 14. But behold, my blood brethren, thus came the voice of the Son unto me, saying, After ye have repented of your sins and witness unto the Father that ye are willing to keep my commandments, by the baptism of water, once again, the baptism of water is obeying, you're keeping the commandment, and have received the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, you can speak with a new tongue. Verse 17, wherefore do the things which I have told you, I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For for this cause have they been shown unto me, the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. It's very clear after you've been obedient and continued, then only then is a remission of your sins given by fire and by the Holy Ghost, not by water. So uh, the law of obtaining the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is done through the law of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So how do we access that? First, we're going to go into... Um, the law, thirty five nine twenty, and ye shall offer a sacrifice unto me, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So this is the law. So a lot of times when it references the law, we have to keep in mind that it's referencing this, where it says the law is fulfilled, or this is the law, or this is the covenant. This is it. It's the broken heart and the contrite spirit. So the sacrifice that you offer, and whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. So how do we access the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, the redemption that we desire, it's through the law of the broken heart and the contrary spirit. Second Nephi 2.6 then says, Wherefore redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law. There's the law unto all those who have what? A broken heart and a contrite spirit. And none else can the ends of the law be answered. Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. So unto none else can this law be fulfilled except those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That law is essential. 3 Nephi 12, 19. And behold, I have given you the law and the commandments of my father, that ye shall believe in me, and that ye shall repent of your sins, and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Behold, ye have the commands before you and the law is fulfilled. So once again, right here, I have given you the law. And then he says, repent of your sins and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And so some people might say, well, what's the, what is a broken heart and a contrite spirit? Now, the broken heart is humility. It, it's so many things symbolically of, of, of being humble and willing and like a child coming into the Lord. Contrite spirit is repentant, penitent, um, understanding our fallen state, which will connect to when whenever you're teaching, you always start with the fall because you have to understand where you're coming from. So you go to the Beatitudes and you see Christ teaching and he says, humble, meek, submissive, um, willing to submit to all things. That's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He's basically telling you the things that you need to do to get to the point of having a broken heart and contrite spirit. Ether 4.15, behold, when ye shall rend the veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness, and hardness of heart, 
and blindness of mind, then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid up from the foundation of the world from you. Yea, when ye shall call upon the Father in my name, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then shall ye know that the Father hath remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. So those you cannot believe that everything you're doing is correct and have a broken heart and a contrite spirit at the same time because a broken heart and contrite spirit is humility. And you're going to see that in Abraham's life that we're going to discuss. You're going to see that in Moses' life. You're going to see that in, in Enos' life. You're going to see that as we go through these, these leaders. So 2 Nephi 4.32, May the gates of hell be shut continually before me because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. So this is Nephi's psalm. This is his great psalm that I love so much. He is basically pleading to the Lord that Satan can have no power over him, that Satan will not be able to tempt him and not be able to affect him. And what is the great um, power that, or strength that he's going to use to stop that is he's going to use a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He's saying, please let me constantly be humble, constantly willing to submit, constantly willing to hear your voice and obey what you say. And he eliminate 15. And as many as should look upon that serpent should live. Even so, as many should look upon the son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit might live even unto that life, which is eternal. And now behold, Moses did not only testify these things, but also all the holy prophets from his days, even to the days of Abraham. So we see that these, this has been being taught. This is something that all the, the prophets in the Book of Mormon knew about. This is something that all the patriarchs knew about. They all taught about it. And Moroni 6, 2 and 4, neither did they receive any unto baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost. So we understand then that to receive redemption means that first we have to um, answer the ends of that law. So what's the law? The law is um, to come forward with a broken heart and contrite spirit. And when we do, something happens. The Lord does his part. So it's a covenant, right? We're going to come forward and we're going to do our part. And then the Lord comes forward and he does his part. And he, um, Christ, is the only one who can say whether we truly have done that part because it's inward, it's spiritual. The out, outward part is the carnal part that just shows obedience, but the inward part where we're truly desiring and seeking, knock and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, ask and it shall be given you. Christ is the only one that knows whether we've truly done that. And so it's him who baptizes you, as John the Baptist said, with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And that's the redemption that brings you back. And so we're going right now to a schematic that that shows the Garden of Eden. And you can find this online. Um, we don't have time to go into all the symbolism and we're going to look at another picture too, that we can't go into symbolism. And I wish we could. So if you're interested, you know, look it up on your own, look, look up what all these things mean, but it's so neat when you, when you see these things side by side. So you've got the creation it happens in the mountain of the Lord. Then you have the garden of Eden, which I don't need to go from the mountain of the Lord to the garden of Eden. And then you have their fall where they're going to come out, Right. So you've got three different spaces here. Of course, you have the tree of life, tree of knowledge, cherubim. We're not going to get into all those things, but we have, as all everyone teaches, whenever they're trying to teach someone, and then that person, as we go through scriptures later, you'll see when Ammon or um, Aaron, when they teach truth to someone, they start from the beginning. They always start here because it's so important to understand where we came from. It's so important to understand 
why we need the atonement and why we need redemption. So the mountain of the Lord represents the celestial. They were created in the celestial realm and then they were placed in a terrestrial realm, which is the garden of Eden. And then when they fall, they're going to go through here past the cherubim, the flaming sword to the celestial realm. Okay. So you've got these three spaces. And those of you who've been to the temple, you're going to obviously see that the symbolism that's laid out in the temple there too. So the atonement is redemption from the fall. And there's just two scriptures just to go over for the natural man is an enemy to God. This is Mosiah 319 and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields the enticements of the Holy spirit. So the only way to not be fallen, the only way to receive redemption is to yield to the enticings of the Holy spirit, to yield to those promptings and those thoughts and to put off the natural man. So it says, and put off the natural man and become the saint through the atonement of Christ, the Lord, and become as a child. And here's the broken heart and the contrite spirit part, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things with the, which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. That is the detailed explanation of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And so the only way to reverse the fall is then to obey the enticings of the spirit, which will lead you through these things. Jesus' atoning sacrifice provided the only way for us to be cleansed and forgiven of our sins so that we can dwell in God's presence eternally. As 2 Nephi 2.8 puts it, there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah. Christ is the gatekeeper. He is in control of who receives redemption and salvation. He is the only one who knows your heart, who knows what you're doing, who knows whether you're hearing him, because he's the one speaking to you. And so that leads us here to the tabernacle. So what you're seeing right now is this is Moses's tabernacle that is laid out. These are surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. It's very simple. Um, There is a purpose here. And this was something that, like I said, when I would look at the, the gospel in Moses's day, I felt so disconnected. It's like, well, I don't, (laughs) there's burnt offering and there's a washing and then only certain priests could go into the holy place, which is the second sphere or the second area. And then only the great high priest could go into the holy of holies and he'd went in there once a year and he would heap up all the sins of the people on his shoulders and ask the Lord to forgive him, you know. And I understood that, okay, there's symbolism of Christ and all these things, but how can this all be the same gospel and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But these people seem to experience something so radically different than what I do in my life today. Um, and so this is basically just a layout of, of the tabernacle that Moses um, built while they were in the wilderness. Now here is a layout. So you can see exactly each part of, of this tabernacle. Now, once again, I'm not going to go into all the details If you, I really, really do suggest that you look into the different things that were placed in the holy place, the things that were in the holy of holies, um, the things that were outside in the um, courtyard. So outside the tabernacle, you have um, the water basin for washing and you have the bronze altar. Those are in the outdoor outside courtyard. So we can't go down to all of those, but search those on your own. It's so neat when you start seeing the symbolism and everything. Um, but this is basically the layout. So you've got the bronze altar where they would go and 
offer up their lambs or, or whatnot. And then you have the labor where they would wash. And, and then the regular people, the everyday people could not access anything further than that. Only the priests, only those who um, had been called and received something more were able to go into the holy place and do things there and so on and so forth. So Moses's um, tabernacle if you look at it, when I'm going to put these side by side, you're going to see it's laid out in the exact reverse of the Garden of Eden. So the, 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 there's the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then you have this tabernacle that's laid out almost exactly in reverse. Because the, the point is that we're supposed to, Adam and Eve had to walk back. They had to reverse the fall through Christ. So they had to go back through the same steps that they went down. And so Moses' tabernacle is doing the same things. They're heading back up the same way that Adam and Eve headed down. Moses had already worked his way back into the presence of God through the redemption of Christ. He tried to teach his people the same process, yet they were unwilling to follow him. Building this tabernacle was a way for him to teach them how to symbolically return to the presence of the Lord. And he hoped they would understand the symbolism and everything he was teaching and doing and act out that process as he did in real life. Now, we know from history that it didn't quite play out that way. Unfortunately, the majority of the Jews saw this symbolism as their salvation. They would go and offer up a lamb and think that their sins were clean now, that their, everything was wiped away. They believed that this carnal outward um, expression, just like baptism, the outward expression, was what saved them. But in reality, it was... It, there's something so much more to that that they were completely missing. Jews fully relied upon their priests and elders to guide them and were wholly unwilling to hear the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said just a couple scriptures ago, yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit that reverses the fall. So once again, we've got the Holy of Holies, that's celestial. You have the holy place, there's your terrestrial. And then of course we have... Um, the telestial sphere out in the courtyard and what's out in the telestial sphere since we're all in the telestial sphere what is available it's the baptism of water and baptism of fire and of the holy ghost so at or um, moses set these out to sh to point their hearts to what had to happen to them literally physically spiritually and unfortunately they just took it as just a carnal commandment that they were fulfilling. They never took it any deeper than that. Very few people did. And this became in some ways an idol. Anything you place between you and the Lord becomes an idol. So as they're going and they're thinking they're receiving salvation in any other way other than Christ, it is an idol. So what you have here is you have a very simple uh, depiction of the tabernacle it's it's not grand it's each thing is laid out pretty clearly it's small i mean you had hundreds and thousands of people accessing this and then what happens by the time you get to solomon you get this so you have a temple for the entire nation you've got these 
um, grand everything. I mean, <laughs> everything's done so incredibly. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. I want to give the Lord the best I can give too. However, what did the majority of Jews believe when Christ came? They believed that the things they did in their temple was what saved them. They didn't act. They didn't accept Christ as a savior or a Messiah or anything for that matter, because they believed they had already received salvation. They believed they had already um, gotten the blessings. If you think you already have these blessings, if you think you've already been saved, do you seek for salvation? If you think you already have the priesthood, do you seek for the priesthood? If you think that you are already um Christ's friend or that you have already um, received all that he has to offer, are you going to seek for anything more? Of course not. And so the broken heart contrite spirit law was definitely not there, but they believed that they were keeping the law. So that brought salvation. And sadly it didn't. And instead we have this enormous idol that was built up. And when Christ is killed, their temple, the veils rent. I mean, it's symbolic that, The Lord is saying, you know, this is nothing. The whole point of this process was to point you to the true doctrine of Christ, to what needed to be done in the celestial realm to work your way back. So Doctrine and Covenants 22.2, wherefore, although a man should be baptized a hundred times, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. The law of Moses was the law of carnal commandments that was given. They couldn't have the higher commands. They were given the lesser. And when I used to think of that, I used to think, okay, well, we have the higher. So um, once again, I felt disconnected. But the reality is that we tend to accept the lesser and believe that that saves us. Because all through the scriptures, it teaches that the baptism of water is just obedience showing that you're striving, but that's not what gives redemption. So none of these dead works, none of these things save them. So here's the two um, schematics down. You've got the creation and falling down, and then you've got coming back up. I'm sorry, that's a little blurry. Um, but just so you have an idea of how clear the Lord from the beginning laid this out. Our whole purpose is to reverse the fall. And we literally go back step by step the way Adam came down. We're literally going to walk through everything. We have to go back through the terrestrial and back up. And we have to hit all those points just as he did. And just as every other patriarch or anyone that's entered back into the presence of Christ in the flesh has, we would have to do the same thing. So this plan of redemption plays out in the lives of all these holy prophets and all these people in the scriptures. And we're going to go into those and we're going to show you how Adam, King Benjamin's people, Alma, Lehi, Abraham, Enos, and Moses, and even to us today, how they have all done it. How they have used the same doctrine, the exact same process that even though over time it may have been confused, people have taken some symbols and may change them to make other things. Um, you've got Solomon's temple. You've got all these different things that people use that can be confusing. But we're going to go in and show that this doctrine, this law of a broken heart and contrite spirit leads to the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and redemption. And being brought back into the presence of Christ. So Adam and Eve first. So, of course, after being cast out, they must work their, their way back through the atonement. So in Moses 5, 4, it says, And Adam and his wife called upon the name of the Lord, 
And they heard the voice of the Lord from the way toward the garden of Eden, speaking unto them. And they saw him not, for they were shut out from his presence. Now, this is interesting. They hear the voice of the Lord from the way toward the garden of Eden. So we understand that when the millennium happens, Christ will be on the earth. It will be a terrestrial sphere. So what is the garden of Eden? Remember, it's that second space. It's the terrestrial. So they hear the Lord's voice from the garden of Eden, which is the terrestrial. So they don't get to see him right now because they haven't been cleansed to be brought back into his presence. However, they can hear him. They can yield to the enticings of the spirit if they are seeking and desiring that. Verse five, and he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. So Adam gets told by enticings and and, and um, guidance to do certain things. And he does them. And after many days, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam and says, why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, say the Lord commanded me. So we'll stop right there. Adam hasn't received anything yet from, from that obedience. Now that obedience, if he continues with the desire to learn and grow and to, and to, um, uh, be, uh, to hear those, those promptings of the spirit and he continues, then he will continue to receive more. However, he receives nothing just by doing it. There is no redemption in just doing the physical actions, right? So verse eight, wherefore thou shalt do all the thou doest in the name of the son and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the son forevermore. So Adam needs further knowledge. So the angel comes and gives him further knowledge. As you'll see this pattern also, we constantly need to receive further knowledge. Joseph Smith taught man cannot be saved any faster than he gains knowledge. Knowledge is so important. And going back to the Jews, if you think you already have everything, if you think you've already been saved, if you think you've already received, then you don't seek more. And you're unwilling to hear more when it's offered to you, which is why the broken heart and contrite spirit, that humble aspect is so important. So he gets more knowledge from the angel and then he's able to act if his heart truly desires to follow christ his actions will reflect that so nine and in that day the holy ghost fell upon adam which beareth record of the father and the son saying i'm the only begotten of the father from the beginning henceforth and forever and as thou hast fallen thou mayest be redeemed and all mankind even as many will so he gets the holy ghost and then he's redeemed okay so this process the very first man on the earth experienced, had to experience. Verse 10, and in that day, Adam blessed God and was filled. Watch for that. He, he rejoices, he glories in Christ, in Christ and in the Father, and he's filled. And then he begins to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth. When you receive that baptism of fire and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, redemption brings you greater light and knowledge, gives you greater gifts. And most of the examples we're going to go over, they're able to prophesy of things that are yet to come. And most of them see the entire um, creation and everything in it saying, blessed be the name of God for because of my transgression, my eyes are opened and this life I shall have joy. And again, in the flesh, I shall see God in the flesh. So this pattern after receiving knowledge and accepting his fallen state, he calls upon God, 
for salvation. He's filled, receives the Holy Ghost, prophesies of all things. His heart's changed. No more disposition to do evil. You see all of these things come out. And now we're going to go to King Benjamin's people. And why I love King Benjamin's people is because I most can connect with King Benjamin's people. I mean, what? this is a big general conference, right? Everybody's going to go listen to the prophet talk, okay? So they all go to their temple. They say it's their temple because that's where they're going and they're worshiping and they're being obedient and they're doing all the ordinances and all the commandments and they're doing everything they can at that time to be obedient. And just like Adam was, Adam was doing everything that the Lord had told him. Um, so I connect most with these people because you know, I feel like I was doing the same thing. So a pattern of, of obedience and offering sacrifice and receiving the Holy Ghost and being able to prophesy is shown really clearly here. So in Mosiah 4.1, it says, And now he cast his eyes around about the multitude, and behold, they had fallen to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. Six, ye have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God. So once again, they needed greater knowledge. These are people that were worshiping. They were doing, they're probably the most righteous people in the land at that time. Um, they were Nephites that ha- had built a temple, had, were, were sacrificing, were working, were, were listening to their prophet, were gathering to hear him speak. Verse two, and they had reviewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. So why do they not see that before? They need a greater knowledge, and that's what King Benjamin offers them. They get, he gives them greater knowledge, so they see, whoa, and it goes back to the fall. They have to understand where they've come from. They truly have to understand that they are fallen. They have nothing. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy, and apply the toning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things, who shall come down among the children of men. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the spirit of the Lord came upon them and they were filled with joy. So they're being filled again. The spirit's there having received a remission of their sins. Now, these people didn't all jump into um, a pool and get baptized. That didn't wash them. Most of these people had already received a baptism. But they had not received a remission of their sins. They had not been redeemed. The spirit had not come upon them. Because they didn't understand. They needed more knowledge and then they needed to act. So finishing off that verse says, and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith, which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come according to the words, which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. When you have a true messenger who speaks truth through the power of the Holy Ghost, that will facilitate the ability for others to receive the same gifts that person has received. So verse six. The atonement which has been prepared from the foundation of the world, that thereby salvation might come to him that shall put his trust in the Lord and should be diligent in keeping his commandments and continue in the faith, even unto the end of his life. I'm in the life of the mortal body. Verse seven, I say that this is the man who received salvation. So who received the salvation? Go back to verse six. Through the atonement which was prepared from the foundation of the world for all mankind, which ever were since the fall of Adam. Once again, he keeps going back to the fall of Adam. Or who are, or whoever shall be, even unto the end of the world. Verse eight. And this is the means whereby salvation cometh. Here's the kicker. And there is none other salvation, save this which has been spoken of. Neither are there any conditions 
whereby man can be saved, except the conditions which I have told you. Go back and read what what um, King Benjamin is has just taught. It's so plain, it's so simple, it's so clear. And you've got the scriptures testifying that there's no other way for salvation. There is no other means that you can be saved and redeemed from the fall except through what he has just taught. The Messiah 5, 2, yea, they express, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth because of the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil. So they've changed. They have no more desire to do evil, but to do continually. That's a fruit of the spirit. If you don't know if you've had a baptism, inspiring baptism, Holy Ghost, well, do you have no more disposition to do evil? Have you had a mighty change in your heart? And as we ourselves also through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his spirit have great views of that, which is to come and word expedient. We could prophesy of all things. Look, they're prophesying. What did Adam do when he was filled with the spirit and he received redemption? Then he could turn and prophesy Then he saw everything. He saw all the creations of the world. And now these people who standing there offering up a broken heart and a contrite spirit and then receive the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost and are redeemed. They're able to prophesy. They're able to see all things. These, these patterns are so clear. So these were, these were good people. They had performed all the ordinances needed according to their understanding, yet they had not been redeemed, nor did they have sufficient knowledge to receive the baptism of fire and gift of the Holy Ghost to enter back into the presence of the Lord. King Benjamin understood this only after an angel taught him. And so um, three, two, it says, and the things which I shall tell you are made known unto me by an angel from God. And he said unto me, awake. And I woke and behold, he stood before me. So this angel gave him specific knowledge needed for him to move forward and administer these truths to his people, just as the angel gave knowledge to Adam and helped Adam come to receive the Holy Ghost and be able to prophesy of all things. These patterns are very clear. So Moses 5.58, it says, And thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels, sent from the presence of God, and by his own voice, and by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those are the ways that you're going to learn about this knowledge and these truths, is by these means. So next we have Lamoni's father and you've got Aaron teaching Lamoni's father. And before we go into this, when I see these Lamanites changing their ways, it's so interesting because we, we read the book of Mormon and we go, yeah, we're Nephites. And sadly, the reality is most of the time we're Laman and Lemuel. Most of the time we're Lamanites. Um, but you have this king. So you've got the pride that goes with being a king. You've got the power that goes with being a king. You've got all their traditions, all the beliefs, all the things that he, that make up his paradigm, that make up who he is and how he works to the extent that when he sees his son, Lamoni, with Ammon, he freaks out. He's like, what are you doing with the son of a liar? And he's going to kill him. What does Ammon do that changes and pricks his heart? Ammon acts in a way that is completely contrary to everything the king believes about those people, about the Nephites. Ammon shows a great love and a great willingness to sacrifice himself. And that brings the king, which is so good that the king has time to ponder all of this because the king can't go right into um, 
learning about something right away, he has time to ponder about it. He has to wait for these messengers to come teach him. So he's able to ponder and go, why is it that, that this Nephite is acting in this way? And that softens his heart. He's starting to have a broken heart, contrite spirit. He's starting to, well, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe, maybe the Nephites aren't what I've been taught. They are. Maybe I'm not everything I've been taught. I am that willingness to receive further truth allows the knowledge to be given and allows him to receive it and to move forward and then to act. So it's so important. That's why I really, really um, love the way that the scriptures lay out uh, King Lamoni's experience or King Lamoni's father's experience. So Alma 22, 12 says, and it came to pass that when Aaron saw that the king would believe his words, he began from what? What does he begin from again? What is everybody teaching from? Adam. He began from the creation of Adam, reading the scriptures unto the king, how God created man after his own image and that God gave him commandments and that because of transgression, man are fallen. Every single one of us is fallen. And I would hear this and go, yeah, we're fallen. (laughs) If that doesn't rot a mighty change in you, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And I, I know this. I've read this scripture a million times and it never, never, never pricked me until I started truly studying the doctrine of Christ. You have to see the importance of understanding that you are fallen, that you merit nothing of yourself. No work you're doing in any place, in any building, in anywhere is saving you. Only Christ does. So verse 13, and Aaron did expound unto him the scriptures from the creation of Adam, laying the fall of man before him in their carnal state, and also the plan of redemption, which was prepared for the foundation of the world through Christ, for all whosoever would believe on his name. 14, and since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself, but the sufferings and death of Christ atone for their sins through faith and repentance and so forth, and that he breaketh the bands of death that the grave shall have no victory and that the sting of death should be swallowed up in the hopes of glory. And Aaron did expound all these things unto the king. 15. What shall I do? The king says that I may have this eternal life, which thou hast spoken. That one line there should stop everyone. That line is what every single one of us should be saying. What shall I do? that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken. He just taught about everything from the creation. He taught about the fall. And then he teaches about redemption and the joy and the glory that swallows up all the pain and suffering, the joy of Christ. And he longs for that. He says, what can I do to partake of that? If you think you already have that, will you ever ask, what can you do to get it? You won't. So he says, yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God? Having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast and receive his spirit that I may be filled with joy, that I may not be cast off the last day. Behold, said he, I will give up all that I possess. What is that? He's willing to give up all that he possesses. That's a broken heart and contrite spirit. He's offering something up on the altar. He's he's humbly willing to sacrifice. If that will bow... And give up all that I possess, yea, I will forsake my kingdom that I may receive this great joy. And now, not all of us have a kingdom to offer, but that's why Christ is the only one who knows if we've had a broken heart or contrary spirit, because he knows what we love. Abraham 
had lots of riches, but he wasn't asked to give that up. He was asked to give up what he loved more than anything. Anything that's between you and God is an idol. Anything that's between the two of you. Abraham wanted that son so bad. And you better believe that that was the hardest thing he had to do. That Abrahamic sacrifice was the hardest thing. Giving up his kingdom for this king was the hardest thing that he would do. And he was willing to do it. He offers up that broken heart and that contrite spirit. And 16, if thou desirest this thing, if thou will bow down before God, so humility, and if thou will repent of all thy sins, so repent, and what does contrite mean? Penitent, repentant, and will bow down before God and call on his name of faith, believing that ye shall receive, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. And 18 is his response. Oh God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God, and if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me? And I will give away all my sins to know thee. And there's, I have quoted that so many times in my prayers. Lord, I will give away all my sins to know you. How much, how much do I really mean that? How much did he really mean that? He was pretty sincere. And that I may be raised from the dead and be saved at the last day. And now when the king had said these words, he was struck as if he were dead. And we know what happened from there. Okay. We know that from there, he has a vision. He's brought into the presence of the Lord. And when he wakes, what happens? He rejoices. He's filled. He praises God. And he leads a people, a great people that end up becoming the most righteous people and of all the Nephites and that their sons are perform miracles. None of them are killed. The stripling warriors. It, it's, it's incredible what they do because of the gifts that he receives and the gifts that his people receive. So now we're going to go to Lehi. Um, something explained about Lehi that I really, really um, find interesting is I had talked with people about Lehi and how he, he goes out into the wilderness by himself and he takes his family and he does these ordinances in the wilderness and, And people have said, oh, well, Lehi could do that because he was a prophet. Lehi could leave the temple. Lehi could go and do these things because he was a prophet. And the thing you need to realize, you got to go back and read the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Because Lehi was not a prophet at the time that these things happened to him. Lehi was a righteous man. However, he was not an ordained anything at that time that was of any authority to any of the people. He saw prophets coming and teaching. However, those people that were telling the Jews that they were going to be destroyed, they weren't, they didn't have any authority according to the Jews. They didn't have any right to tell the Jews what's going on. Um, they, they were just normal everyday people. Who are they to listen to? But because Lehi was a righteous man, he'd studied the scriptures. He'd prayed. He'd heard the voice of the Lord, which we all should be doing. And he knew what they were doing was right. And so what does Lehi do? Lehi goes out in the wilderness, not to a temple. He goes out in the wilderness to offer up his cries and his heart to the Lord on behalf of his people. Because he sees and he believes what's going to happen. And he knows it's going to happen. He knows these people are going to be destroyed. And it's at that moment that the fire comes down. And then he receives a baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And it just spirals from there. So the things that he began doing, he was no different than any one of us. He hadn't received anything special up to that point. The the scriptures pick up right when Lehi starts um, to become something. 
So to say that, oh, well, he, he could do these things and he could leave these things and he could begin something on his own just because he was a prophet. Well, he wasn't a prophet at the time he did those things. He was a man seeking and he was willing to receive greater knowledge and he had a broken heart in that contrite spirit. So verse four in first Nephi, it was my father Lehi having dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days. And in that same year, there came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they must repent or that great city Jerusalem must be destroyed. In verse five, wherefore it came to pass that my father Lehi, as he went forth, prayed unto the Lord, yea, even with all his heart in behalf of his people. And it came to pass as he prayed unto the Lord, there came a pillar of fire dwelt upon a rock before him and he saw and her much because of the things which he saw and heard he did quake and tremble exceedingly this tells you this was his first time he was shocked that he got a response like this he'd probably heard prompting the spirit he'd probably been guided by maybe other wonderful spiritual manifestations but uh fire dwelling upon a rock and things and he heard and saw much it doesn't tell us everything, but he heard and saw much. He did quake and tremble exceedingly. This was the first grand manifestation that Lehi had. And thus, overcome with the spirit, so filled, overcome, he was carried away in a vision, even that he saw the heavens open, and he thought he saw God sitting upon this throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels, and the attitude of singing and praising their God. So Lehi sees this happening. He longs to be there. Um, he sees Christ descending with the 12 disciples and he's given a book that he can read out of. And it came to pass that as he read, he spilled with the spirit of the Lord. So he's given greater knowledge. He didn't have the knowledge yet to continue to progress, but the Lord gives that to him as he seeks it. So he's given that knowledge and he's able to continue to progress. 15. And after this manner was the language of my father and the praising of his God for his soul did rejoice. So he praises God. His soul rejoices. His whole heart is filled. Again, every one of these, they're filled because of the things which he had seen. Yea, the Lord, which the Lord had shown unto him. Um, chapter two, verse two, and it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream that he should take his family and depart in the wilderness. What happened to Adam? So once he goes through this process, now the Lord's speaking directly to him and he's telling him what to do. What happens with Lehi? Did, did one of the prophets that came and prophesied, did Jeremiah come and tell him where to go? No. Once you have the baptism of the fire and baptism of the Holy ghost, you're communing with heaven. Now it's more direct. You get direct guidance from the Lord and the Lord commands him what to do. The Lord tells him where to go. There is no mediator. There's no one between him and God. So this is laid out so clearly in the tree of life in, in, in his dream um, of the tree of life. So Lehi begins a dream. I'm not going to go through the whole dream, but he just begins a dream and he's um, wandering through a dark place and he sees a man in a white robe who beckons him to follow him. He's like, come follow me. He's like, sure, I'll follow you. <laughs> you know, I mean, how easy is it to follow someone? I hate to admit this, but if I'm in a conversation with, you know, someone in the passenger seat when I'm driving a couple times, I have been known to follow a car in front of me. I just go on autopilot. I know it probably sounds awful. Um, maybe I'm not the only one that's ever done that. They're like, oh, whoa, I'm following a car in front of me. It's so easy to follow somebody else. It's hard to go and get that yourself, to get that revelation, to work through the grit and the, the hard 
painful experiences it takes to discern truth from error, to discern whether God's really talking to you or whether you're listening to someone else. That is so hard. Why do that? And you're going to see that later on with Israel. It was hard. It was so much easier to just follow someone. So Lehi's like, sure, I'll follow you. Well, what happens after following him for a distance? He finds himself in a lone and dreary waste. He's completely alone and he becomes so desperate. All he can do is call out directly to God. That's a broken heart contrast. He realizes he can do nothing of himself. He has no power to save himself. There's no one else that can save him. It's drawn, it's brought him to an even worse place than he originally was. And only going directly to the Lord is what's going to bring salvation. And when he does that, when he calls out to the Lord in that moment, what does he see? He sees a tree of life. What does a tree of life represent? Christ. Okay. He's brought back. So, Next, we're going to discuss Abraham and (laughs) Abraham is just amazing to me because you've got someone who I don't know if you guys have ever read the book of Jasher and um, I we've gone through the book of Jasher. I love it. It's so I think my husband started reading a few years ago. And if you really want to get an understanding of of so many uh, incredible experiences that aren't touched on as much in the regular canon of scripture, go to the book of Jasher. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, and it's, it's very much just a history and it's, it's incredible. And so what you learn about Abraham, you learn, you know, Abraham's father created these idols that everyone was worshiping. And uh, you've got, him as a young boy realizing this is wrong. I, his relationship with the Lord, him praying, his study scriptures, he can, however it is, he knows it's wrong. So in, in verse one, it says, I, Abraham saw that it was needful for me to another, obtain another place of residence. It was needful for him because he was going to be offered up and killed. Right. So two, and thus finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought for the blessings of the fathers This is a really important um, distinction to make here. Blessings of the fathers. He didn't want the blessings of his father or his grandfather or his great grandfather. Who are the fathers? Because all those people were wicked. They tried to kill him. They made idols. They um, he doesn't even he leaves his family. So who are the fathers? This is the really, really neat part of the doctrine of Christ that you're going to see is that the blessings of the fathers are blessings that those who have received redemption have. So those who have experienced the doctrine of Christ, who have acted, who have received the baptism by the Holy Ghost, who have been redeemed from the fall, they can then turn and help others receive that also. So Abraham knew that there was something more and he desired to have greater happiness. He desired peace and rest. And so he sought for those blessings also. And the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. So not only did he want to receive those blessings, but he wanted the ability to turn and help others receive the blessings also. And he says, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace and desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God. I became a rightful heir 
a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers. His desire to get greater knowledge, his desire to keep growing and learning in the gospel is what gives him the ability to continue to progress. Verse 3, it was conferred upon me from the fathers. It was conferred upon him from the fathers, not his father. The blessings are given through the lineage that is not a carnal lineage. It's a spiritual lineage. Remember, there's the carnal law. You baptize by water. That's carnal. But there's spiritual law. And that lineage is spiritual. Those who become the sons of God are those who are redeemed from the fall. So it was conferred upon him by the fathers. And it came down from the fathers through that lineage. And when you receive of that same redemption, now you enter into that lineage. So from the beginning of time, yet even from the beginning or from the foundation of the earth down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or first father through the fathers unto me. Again, goes all the way back to Adam. Adam received that redemption. Then he goes and he helps others receive that redemption. And then they're all part and parcel. They all work together to continue to administer that redemption. That is not a carnal lineage. That is a spiritual lineage of those who are brought back into the presence of God. Verse 4, I sought for my appointment unto the priesthood, according to the appointment of God unto the fathers concerning their seed. 5, my fathers having turned from their righteousness. Again, he makes the distinction between his um, carnal fathers and the true fathers or the sons of God. And from the holy commandments, which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen, other utterly refused to hearken to my voice. So no one around him would listen to him. No one would hearken to what um, he was teaching. Verse 15, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord, my God. So he calls upon God, like in Lehi's dream, he calls upon the Lord for salvation because he can't find it anywhere else. And the Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me again. He filled me with the vision of the almighty and the angel of his presence stood by me and immediately unloosed my bands. So again, you got the batches of fire back in the Holy Ghost here when they're being filled and they're being um, saved and they're receiving redemption. But the records of the fathers, even the patriarchs, this is verse 31, concerning the right of the priesthood, the Lord my God preserved in mine own hands. Therefore, a knowledge of the beginning of creation and also of the planets and of the stars as they remain known to the fathers if I kept him to this day. They have to go all the way back to creation. He had to preserve that so then he could teach it. To verse 3, now the Lord said unto me, Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land that I will now show thee. So after all of that, what does the Lord tell him? He tells him to go just like Adam, just like just like the other stories, he then he starts getting commandments to go and do these other things. He's guided into a new way. Enos, I, when it comes to Enos, I used to think when I was younger, well, um, if I stay up for three days and pray, then I'll hear God too. <laughs> you know, I reading Enos always made me think, well, I'm just not capable of staying up for three days, so I guess I won't ever get to hear God. But what stands out here with Enos is Enos is whose son? He's Jacob's son. Jacob is Nephi's little brother. 
these are very righteous men. Nephi um, enters into the presence of God. He says it several times. He's seen Christ. He's experienced Christ. Um, Jacob says the same thing. He's experienced Christ. He knows of his holiness. He's received the baptism fire, back in the Holy Ghost. He's been redeemed. He prophesies. He's able to, he has all the gifts of receiving redemption. You get these gifts when you receive redemption. Enos comes into play here because Enos shows He's a good man. He's doing everything his father has has taught him to do, but he hasn't been redeemed. So in verse one, it says, behold, it came to pass that I, knowing my father, that he was a just man. So already right there, he knows that his father is righteous for he taught me in his language and also in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So he's been taught from a very young age. Everything he needs to do, everything he needs to um, act upon. You think that if Jacob received redemption, he wasn't teaching his son that? Of course he was. But Enos, doing all the carnal commandments, he's been baptized. He's probably working in the temple, doing all the things he needs to do. He has not received redemption yet. He hasn't had that moment. But pondering on all the things that his father Jacob has taught him, finally pricks his heart to the point where he's like, let me tell you of the wrestle which I had before God before I received a remission of my sins. So he's going to tell us what had to happen for him to finally receive remission of his sins. It did not happen in a baptismal font. It did not happen in some place or some building where everybody else is doing the same thing. It's a very sacred, very personal, very individual experience that happens between you and Christ. Verse five, and there came a voice unto me saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee and thou shalt be blessed. So only the voice of him who cannot lie can call you and tell you you are forgiven and you are redeemed. Verse eight, because of thy faith in Christ. So, of course, Enos says, well, how is it done? And then Christ responds, um, because of your faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before seen or heard, and many years pass away before he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. Wherefore, go to thy faith hath made thee whole. And by the power of God, that, um, so verse 26, this is towards the end, by the power of God that I must preach and prophesy unto this people and declare the word according to the truth which is in Christ. And I have declared it in all my days and have rejoiced in it above the world. Well, again, what stands out right there? He's prophesying and he's rejoicing. He's filled. He has received that redemption by heeding the law of the broken heart and the contrite spirit and then receiving the redemption, the remission through baptism, fire, baptism, the Holy Ghost. And he experiences and hears the voice of the Lord. Okay, so we're we're to Moses here. And Moses is the, the typifying moment here for us because with Moses, this is a man who had all the experiences, came into the presence of the Lord, has baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, you know, is talking directly with God, performs all these amazing miracles. He pulls the people out of um, bondage. And then what happens? He gets all these years with them just whining and complaining. And he's trying to get them to come up and converse with God. And they can't even just not worship an idol for a couple days. It's it's so crazy. I can't even imagine what Moses was dealing with when he's trying to help these people experience the same thing. So Moses accomplished the process. He, he From the creation, fall, redemption, he receives the greater knowledge, causes him to act and progress. So Moses 1.8 says, And it came to pass that Moses looked, and behold, 
the world upon which it was created. And Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof, and all of the children of men which are and which were created. Of the same he greatly marveled and wondered. Verse 9, now this, now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. He has to see the fall. He has to see everything from the beginning, and he has to realize man is nothing. We are nothing. To fully have a broken heart, contrite spirit and go to Christ and offer up everything, you have to truly be humble. You have to truly see. So then he's trying to teach the Israelites. And 68, he says, Behold, thou art one in God, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons. So um, that saying, thus may all become our sons, basically suggests you're not all his sons. Because it's a spiritual lineage. Being brought back into Christ's presence through the redemption is what makes you a son of God. So Moses had received that, and he desired others to receive that. In Deuteronomy 5.5, 5, I stood between the Lord and you at that time. I shew you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of the fire, and went not up into the mount. 24, and he, ye said, Behold, the Lord our God hath shewed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God did talk with man, and he liveth. 25. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. 27. Now, go thou near. The Israelites saying, now you go. Moses, you go and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. And speak thou unto us all the lo- that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee. And we will hear it and then we'll do it. So remember when we were talking about following someone, it's so much easier to, you know, in the dream, the tree of life, he was following someone. Where did it take him, though? If you're if you're completely following someone, that's not Christ. It's not going to get you where you want to go. The people, what they had to offer up, what they had to experience was more than they wanted to give. They didn't have the broken heart, and the contrite spirit. They weren't able to keep the law. They didn't want to. They wanted a mediator. They wanted to put someone between them and God. What happens when you do that? That becomes an idol. There's messengers that come to us. There's prophets and teachers and leaders because we need greater knowledge. However, Moses spent three days trying to sanctify Israel to do everything properly to bring them into the presence of God. The same thing he had done himself. He knew how to do it. The people willingly chose the lesser. He said, no, it's too hard. Look, I don't want to do that. Just you go, you listen, and just come tell us. How easy is that? Do you think you can buy salvation by doing less? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't. They cannot be redeemed if they don't follow the proper steps. Just because their prophets redeemed doesn't mean they are because they believe in him. They have to experience it themselves. So this is where we're going to make our connection to Joseph Smith. Because no other two prophets have been compared so much in scripture and in prophecy than these two men. And so here's a couple of Moses 141. And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as not and take many of them from the book, which thou shalt write, behold, I will raise up another like unto thee. And they shall be had among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. We know it's re- referencing Joseph Smith. Third Nephi 3, 7, 9. As choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins. 
and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be great like unto Moses. DNC 22. But behold, verily, verily, say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. One, DNC 10791. And again, the duty of the president of the office of the priesthood is to preside over the whole church and be like unto Moses. See the, oh, the connection there that happens? Now look, what was Moses trying to do? The people wouldn't come individually and have the same experience that he was trying to get them to have. He had to get, they, they immediately started falling back to their carnal ways. He had to get rid of the higher law and he comes down with the lesser law and then he gives them a tabernacle. He gives them a way to symbolically try to point their hearts to what they literally had to experience, both physically and spiritually. And then what do we see that Joseph Smith did? Joseph Smith received the same that Moses did. But do all the saints receive what Joseph Smith received? How many other people were able to enter the presence of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? Now, we have some amazing people that did have baptism of fires, that did have some neat experiences. But you basically see that trickle off. Look at the comparison there. Joseph Smith wasn't able to do the same thing that he was striving just like Moses. Moses wasn't able to do that same thing. Um, So they had to give the the presentation and the symbolism there for others. So the doctrine of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see the doctrine of Christ. Second Nephi 31, 2, wherefore the things which I have written sufficeth me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. 13, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. This is the doctrine of Christ. You Follow the carnal commandment outwardly, and then you continue your, until you receive the Holy Ghost and receive that baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then you're given gifts where you're able to speak with the tongue of angels or you're able to prophesy. You shout praises because you're filled with joy. Second Nephi 31, 17, that ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by fire. And then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. So the remission, see, by entering the gate, the remission is not by water. Then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. Okay, there's no servant there. No one else gives that but Christ himself. Second Nephi 31, 21. And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way. And there's no other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without. And amen. Second Nephi 32, 5 through 6. For behold, again, I say unto you that if ye will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things what ye should do. Verse 6, behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. And there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. 
And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you, shall ye observe to do. It's so clear, it's so plain, and it's so simple. The doctrine of Christ has been the same all through the beginning of time, through every patriarch, through every scripture, through every um, symbolic uh, tabernacle or gesture or idea that has been taught by the holy prophets. And that's that you must abide the law of a broken heart and contrite spirit. You, you must follow Christ into the, into the water and complete that carnal law and then have the spiritual inward change, which is the broken heart and contrite spirit. And only by doing those things do you receive a remission of your sins. And then right here it says, and there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. So after all these other um, patriarchs had experienced this, then the Lord starts talking directly to them. They hear his voice and they see him. They witness of Christ. This is the pattern. God works through patterns. He appears the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change his patterns. There is no changing. He says there is no variableness. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the same. So that means if we walk the same path, if we do these same things, if we receive this, then yes, we will experience Jesus Christ himself. And we are supposed to do that in the flesh, just like Nephi says, manifest himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you shall ye observe to do. Third Nephi eleven forty, and whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock. The doctrine is clear. The way to salvation and redemption is very clear. Second Nephi thirty one thirteen says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you're willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, and then can you speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. This is the process. This is the pattern. This is the path that every patriarch and every prophet in the scriptures has followed. It's the same for us today. Second Nephi 2, wherefore redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. He offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Um, so I'm going to finish this with um, the letter by... Uh, Joseph Smith, because it really ties everything together. And this is one of my favorite pieces of work. I mean, Joseph Smith obviously <laughs> got a lot of incredible stuff. But um, so bear with me. This is uh, about a page letter, but it's it's so incredible. And Joseph is basically writing this letter to his uncle Silas. And you can find this in the Joseph Smith papers. It, you can find it in his handwriting. And then, of course, they have it transcribed if you want to click on it and save it or... or uh, whatever, to make it a little easier to read. But um, it was written September 26, 1833. 
And this summarizes basically everything that we've just gone over. So respected Uncle Silas, it is with feelings of deep interest for the welfare of mankind, which fill my mind on the reflection that all were formed by the hand of him who will call the same to give an impartial account of all their works in the great day to which you and myself in common with them are bound. That I take up my pen and seat myself in an attitude to address a few though imperfect lines to you for your perusal. I have no doubt, but you will agree with me that men will be held accountable for the things which they have and not for the things which they have not, or that all the light and intelligence communicated to them from their beneficent creator, whether it is much or little, by the same they in justice will be judged, and that they are required to yield obedience to and approve upon that, and that only which is given. For man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Seeing that the Lord has never given them to understand by anything heretofore revealed that he has ceased to speak forever to his creatures when sought unto in a proper manner, why should it be thought a thing incredible that he should be pleased to speak again in the last days for their salvation? Perhaps you may be surprised at this assertion, that I should say for the salvation of his creatures in these last days, since we already have in our possession, possession a vast volume of his word, which we have previously been given. But you will admit that the word spoken to Noah was not sufficient for Abraham, or it was not required of him to leave the land of his nativity and seek an inheritance in a strange country upon the word spoken to Noah. But for himself, he obtained promises from the hand of the Lord and walked in that perfection that he was called a friend of God. Isaac, the promised seed, was not required to rest his hope alone upon the promises made to his father, Abraham. But he was privileged with the assurance of his approbation in the sight of heaven by the direct voice of the Lord to him. If one man can live upon the revelations to another, might I not ask with propriety why the necessity then of the Lord speaking to Isaac as he did? as is recorded in the 26th chapter of Genesis. For the Lord there repeats or rather promises again to perform the same oath which he had previously sworn to Abraham. Was not Isaac Abraham's son? And could he not place implicit confidence in the veracity of his father as being a man of God? Perhaps you may say that he was a very peculiar man and different from men in these last days. Consequently, the Lord favored him with blessings peculiar and different as was different from the men of his age. I admit that he was a peculiar man. It was not only peculiarly blessed, but was greatly blessed. But all the peculiarity that I can discover in the man or all the difference between him and men in this age is that he was more holy and more perfect before God and came to him with a purer heart and more faith than men in his day. The same may be said on the subject of Jacob's history. Why was it that the Lord spake to him concerning the same promise after he had made it once to Abraham and then renewed it again to Isaac? Why could not Jacob rest content upon the words spoken to his fathers? When the time of the promise drew nigh for the deliverance of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, why was it necessary that the Lord should begin speaking to them again? 
the promise or word to Abraham was that his seed should serve in bondage and be afflicted 400 years. And after that, they should come out with great substance. Why did they not rely upon that promise? When they had remained in Egypt in bondage 400 years, why didn't they just come out without waiting for further revelation, but act entirely upon the promise given to Abraham that they should come out? Paul said to his Hebrew brethren that God might more abundantly show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. He also exhorts them who through faith and patience inherit promises. Notwithstanding, we, said Paul, have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Yet he was careful to press upon them the necessity of continuing on until they, as well as those who then inherited the promises, might have assurance of their salvation confirmed to them by an oath from the mouth of him who could not lie. For that seemed to be the example anciently, and Paul holds it out to his Hebrew brethren as an object attainable in his day. And why not? I admit that by reading the scriptures of truth, the saints in the days of Paul could learn beyond the power of contradiction that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had the promise of eternal life confirmed to them by an oath of the Lord. But that promise or oath was no assurance to them, meaning the people in Paul's time, of their salvation. But they could walk in the footsteps and continue in the faith of their fathers, obtain for themselves an oath for confirmation that they were meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. If the saints in the days of the apostles were privileged to take the ancients, for examples, and to lay hold of the same promises and attain to the same exalted privilege of knowing that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life and that they were sealed there as a perpetual memorial before the face of the Most High, will not the same faithfulness the same purity of heart, the same faith, bring the same assurance of eternal life and that in the same manner to the children of men now in this age of the world? I have no doubt but that the holy prophets and apostles and saints in ancient days were saved in the kingdom of God. Neither do I doubt but that they held converse and communion with him while they were in the flesh as Paul said to his Corinthian brethren that the Lord Jesus showed himself to about 500 saints at one time after his resurrection. Job said that he knew that his Redeemer lived and that he should see him in the flesh in the latter days. I may believe that Enoch walked with God and by faith was translated. I may believe that Noah was the perfect man in his generation and also walked with God. I may believe that Abraham communed with God and conversed with angels. I may believe that Isaac obtained a renewal of the, of the covenant made to Abraham by the direct voice of the Lord. I may believe that Jacob conversed with holy angels and heard the voice of his maker, that he wrestled with the angel until he prevailed and obtained that blessing. I may believe that Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire with fiery horses I may believe that the saints saw the Lord and conversed with him face to face after his resurrection. I may believe that the Hebrew church came to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an immutable company of angels. 
I may believe that they took into eternity, they looked into eternity and saw the judge of all and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. But will all this purchase an assurance for me and waft me to the regions of eternal day and seat me down in the presence of the king of kings with my garments spotless, pure and white? Or must I not rather obtain for myself by my own faith and diligence in keeping the commandments of the Lord and assurance of salvation for myself? And have I not an equal privilege with the ancient saints? And will not the Lord hear my prayers and listen to my cries as soon as he ever did to theirs? If I come to him in the manner they did, or is he a respecter of persons? So I must close this subject for one of time, and I may with propriety say at the beginning, we would be glad to see you in Kirtland. We would be glad to see you embrace the new covenant and be one with us. We sometimes think you are now one with us in heart. I remain yours affectionately, Joseph Smith Jr. So Joseph Smith lays out the patriarchs from the beginning that none of them were content in resting assured of a promise made to a father or someone else before them. They did not rest until they heard from the mouth of him who cannot lie that they were redeemed through the law that is placed and explained all throughout the scriptures. This is the doctrine of Christ. This is the doctrine of the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I testify that as we follow this pattern, as we follow those who have gone before us, as we do so in faith with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, we too receive that same blessing. We too are redeemed from the fall. And I say these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.